Good morning. Good to see you all here today. Thanks for joining us and worshiping the Lord with us together. If you're watching online, we're so grateful for you taking time to be with us. And uh, we pray that God's presence will be strong there where you are just as, as he is here in this place. With God, there is no distance too far. And his presence is near to all who call upon him. So we pray today you'll feel the presence of God. I want to thank you for giving your support financially to our missions endeavors. One of the key aspects of every church that is healthy is they are concerned about reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's those who are near and those who are far away. Amen? And in your giving, you help us to do that. So thank you so, so much. Uh, for, for being faithful to give. Next month, we'll have a quarterly report of our missions endeavors, what we're doing, and uh, we'll keep you well informed of that. And I want to encourage you, too, to realize that you are God's representative where you are in your community, in your environment, with your home, at your place of occupation. God wants you to be his representative there every day. Let your light shine that people would see God's grace in your life. Well, this morning we're starting a new series um, called Seven Days. You just saw the, the, the video for it there that sets it up. It's amazing what can happen in seven days, how quickly things can change. And as you look at the Word of God, it's important to know this, that when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a third of those four books are devoted to the last week of the life of Christ. That should tell us that studying his last week, sometimes called Passion Week or Holy Week or Last Week uh, by different religious uh, handles they put on it, that understanding that will help us to know how significant it is to study these last seven days in the life of Christ. When you read through the New Testament, there are four Gospels. I like the way one person talked about reading the Gospels, we look at them vertically, which means individually and how they all have a unique path and unique purpose, but then we look at them horizontally, how they come together in harmony to bring forth the full story of the life of Christ. Now, some people have trouble grasping this, but it's really a simple process if you think about it. We're talking about the life of Jesus. John, toward the end of his book in chapter 20, said, if we were to try to write everything that he did, basically the summary is this, there is not enough paper on the planet to detail everything that Jesus did. How many of you are glad he's done something in your life? So what you get are these snapshot portraits of the life of Jesus. They all come from different perspectives, but they come together in unity. Now, of the four Gospels, it's very rare. As a matter of fact, it's just very interesting in my opinion. Only 10 events are recorded in each of the Gospels. Matthew has some stuff that Mark, Luke, and John don't have. Matthew and Mark have some things that Luke and John don't have. John has a lot of things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have. Uh, so there, there's all this uniqueness in there, but there's only 10 events that all four of the Gospel writers talk about. Eight of them are in the last week. That should be significant to us. This is an important message, something that's important to understand. And we'll look this morning at Luke chapter 19, 
verses 28 through 40. It's also told in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. And what's called the, the triumphant entry or Palm Sunday, the story. Now, if you grew up, how many of you in the room grew up in a Catholic, uh, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopal, one of those kind of churches? Let me just see your hand real high if that's you. Okay, it's a few here. You probably remember Palm Sunday growing up, if you went to church a lot, that Palm Sunday was always a pretty big production. In most of those type churches, they actually bring palm leaves in, something I've never seen in all my years of being an Assembly of God person. We're not kind of into that thing, I guess, but it's to remind us of what happened. And so to hear about Palm Sunday Six weeks before Easter will seem way out of place for some of you traditional church people that are from that kind of background. But we're looking at it because in the next six weeks, we're going to go over the last seven days. So we got to start here so we can get through the rest of it. When you look at Palm Sunday, uh, you find some interesting things, and I think that God will help us to learn some lessons from his word today. Look at, look at the word with me in Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 40. After telling this story, and by the way, the story, how many of you read scripture, you see something like that, your curiosity gets the best of you, and you go, what was the story he just told? He just told the story of 10 servants who have been given different sum, or, or sums of money, each one of them, probably the same amount in this story of all of them. One did really well with it. One went and hid it and didn't do anything with it. And the principle of the story is this, God gives you gifts for development and usage, not for you to go hide somewhere and put on the shelf like a trophy. If you've been given a gift, you need to use it. And here's what Jesus teaches prior to this, that if you use the gift that you have, the reward is you get more gift to use elsewhere. I say it like this to people sometimes, what is the reward for doing your best as it relates to giving to missions? It's the opportunity to do more. Can I be real honest with you and tell you every year when I hear what our church does for missions, there, there's kind of this mixed emotion to me. The biggest emotion is this. It's incredible joy because for several years, our church has been given way into the hundreds of thousands, over half a million dollars for several years now, every year to missions. That's the first side of it. The back side of it, just human nature, is I go, how in the world are we going to do that again next year? And we do it because you're faithful to give, and everybody cooperates. But I've noticed this, that a lot of things God calls us to do, we grow into them. And that's what Jesus teaches in the story that's mentioned here. After telling the story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As they came to the town of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners, and let me pause right there and give you a point of understanding that, that really I hadn't thought of until just recently too. We, most of us, we think of a donkey and we don't think of an animal of great value. They're, they're not certainly as expensive as a great racehorse would be 
or as a uh, valuable uh, cow would be. Uh, Potential's way different there. But in biblical times, the donkey was of great value to the point that often an individual couldn't own it. It would take several people coming together, pooling their monies to buy one donkey. So that's why it says, it's not a mistake, it's the right word, the owners. There were more than one person that owned this donkey. And the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? How many of you think that's a good question? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. I wish it had more there. Anybody ever read the Bible and wish there was like a little more? I want to know the rest of the story. Did they go, sure, no problem? Did, did, did the disciples have to go, what's that over there? And, you know, take off. How, what happened? How did, we don't know. None of the four gospels tell us exactly. They all say basically the same thing here. And they said, the Lord needs it. And they went with the cult. And sure enough, as, as they're there, the disciples tell them the Lord needs it, and they brought the coat to Jesus, and the disciples threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowds spread out the garments on the road ahead of him. When they reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles that he had seen. How many of you know that one mark of being a healthy follower of Jesus Christ is that it doesn't take much to motivate you to praise. There should be an instant song in your heart. There should be a smile on your face. There should be joy that abounds in your life. And as they begin to think about what he's done, they begin to sing and they begin to praise God. They begin to shout. And they said this, verse 38, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. Jesus replied, If they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. When you look at the last three years of the life of Jesus, the ministry years, the first year is often categorized as a year of obscurity. People really didn't know what was going on. How many of you know that most overnight successes take several years? And that's kind of the storyline. He, he was ministering, he was doing things, but there was a little bit of obscurity to who he was, wasn't well known, and then it kind of kicked in and, and it became a year of popularity after that. Then the last year, and, it, and there's not hard dates and cutoffs, the last year was popularity mixed with opposition. He was still popular in that last year, but he certainly faced much opposition, specifically from the Jewish religious people. I gave you the last things there. By the way, I've got a little bit of a sore throat today. Just this, little, this is like your uh, public announcement help thing right here. Dr. Carter, who used to go to our church, was just a, just a great, great man of God. He told me many, many years ago, when I first got here, now my throat was getting kind of scratchy whenever he said, Pastor, if you will drink Gatorade, it refreshes and rehydrates your voice. So this is Gatorade. This is not a plug. You can also use Powerade or any other kind of thing like that, the electrolyte stuff. But if you, that's why I'm drinking this today, because my throat's a little bit on edge 
And my great friend gave me incredible advice and said, drink Gatorade. He also said you could gargle it, which I'm not going to do today. <laughs> but that kind of saturates your voice a little bit more if, you, if you're where you can do that. Um, the events that sparked this incident was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, there's rich symbolism, there are lessons to learn. Let me give you, it's not in your notes, but let me give you three universal truths to learn from this story. We'll unpack it a little bit as we go through. The first one is this, life can change quickly. Let me help you understand that. I'm going to mention dates. Let's see how quick you are as a congregation, how quickly life can change. November 22nd. 1963. Young people are going, is this a history test? Uh, older folks are going, Kennedy's assassination. This one might be a little tricky for you, but if you think about it, you'll get it pretty quick. I think January 28th, 1986, Challenger exploded. That's kind of a monumental moment in life for most of us, and one where most of us probably remember where we were at or what we were doing. I remember watching it when it happened. Anybody else? And you're watching what it should be this great feat of technology and great celebration, and immediately it changes to just absolute disaster and tragedy. How about one that's a little quicker for maybe some of us? September 11th, 2001. How quickly life can change. That's something we all need to be aware of. The Bible tells us in many places, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We should always put ourselves in God's hand. And the second truth is this, you can't control your life. Now, probably some of you just freaked out by hearing that statement because you're somewhat like me and you like to be in control and you like to plan. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things and certainly good planning and working to control your future is a smart thing to do, but you better understand there's a component in there that is outside of your hands. And again, we go get a long list of things that we can all think about. The third thing you have to know is this. Trusting God for what you can't control is wisdom. Now, let's look at the story and get some other lessons for life. The first lesson is this, and it ties into the three I just gave you. Jesus is always in control. This story from Palm Sunday tells us that the Lord's always in control. I, I'm going to go quickly. I could give you more, but I'm going to try to move through it fairly quick. The disciples proved their faithfulness. They proved that they were under the Lord's control, under his lordship with their obedience. How do you know if you're a disciple or not? Well, disciples go where they are sent. Y'all are kind of quiet today, but I'm going to wait on you. Disciples go where they are sent, and they do what they are told. Disciples don't interject, hey, I've got a different idea, Lord. I've got a better thought. Disciples simply obey the voice of their Lord. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, he was fulfilling prophecies, I think four at least, that are connected here. One is the place where he would be at Jerusalem. By the way, the word Jerusalem is in your notes there. That word means, uh, the first part is the word see or, or be in awe of, come in understanding of, 
and we all know the word shalom, which is peace, but it doesn't mean peace as we think about peace typically. Peace there means completeness or wholeness. And so Jerusalem means to look on and see the wholeness of God and be in awe of, of his actions in your life. We're working right now on a trip next year to um, back to Israel. If you would like to go next March, we're looking at doing it again over spring break week kind of a thing. If you're interested, you can talk to me about that later. We'll have some information coming out pretty quick. And when we get back from there, everybody's asking, what was your favorite part? What was this? What was that? And I went there thinking my favorite part would be Jerusalem. And I came home with Jerusalem being my least favorite part. Here's the reason why. And some of you may have different perspectives than I do here. But I went to Jerusalem thinking this is the city of David. This is just going to be so awesome. And then there is a mosque where the temple used to be. And I understand that cities controlled by different groups and factions, and it's not anything that's united under God at all, but it's incredibly divided. And because of that, it just kind of left me feeling a bit empty. I got to be honest with you, I much preferred the Sea of Galilee, where it's like Jesus did his miracles right there. This is cool. But Jerusalem was like what it could have been, but it's not. We need to understand that Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And by the way, kind of an interesting story real quick. The Eastern Gate, the Muslims that are there, they blocked up the Eastern Gate so nobody can come through it, first of all. Then secondly, they put a cemetery right in front of it. Because for Jewish people, going through a cemetery is not kosher. <laughs> That's the right word, too, by the way. It's not a thing you do. So they think that somehow they've stumped how Jesus will make that happen. My money's on Jesus. I want to see how he does it. But I bet when he's done, I'm going to go, wow. And I will see the wholeness of who God is. The manner in which he came in, Zechariah 7, 9 gives the prophecy. He'll come in on a colt. And uh, the moment he would come, Daniel 9, 25, 26 predicts the time and gets it exactly point on. The meaning of what was being said, Hosanna, Lord, save us now. All of these things point to messianic prophecies that tell us Jesus is the Son of God. When he came in on a donkey, it was reminiscent of Solomon in 1 Kings 1.33. As they lay the, carp, the, 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 the clothing on the road... It would be comparable to what, to what we think of as rolling out the red carpet. I don't know why red carpet is better than gold carpet or blue carpet or green carpet, but how many of you know when they have an awards show, they have the red carpet? And they talk about the red carpet runway and who was wearing what and who was with who and all of these kind of things. When the people are throwing their cloaks down, their clothes on the ground, it's like they are preparing for him a red carpet entrance into the city. It is signifying uh, his, his kingship and who he is. The palm branches were a symbol of victory. And you have to go back and understand a little bit about Greek culture in that time, that when winners would win a race or something like that of significance, they would be giving a, a laurel wreath, the place on their head, and it was made kind of a palm leaves, that sort of a thing. And when they put the palm branches out, it was a symbol of the victory of God. And Jesus, in this passage, is displaying his lordship. 
Second thing I want you to know is this. Not only is Jesus always in control, but the crowd is often confused. If you go with the crowd, you're going to get in trouble every time. Now, you say crowd. That's the word the Bible uses here. Josephus gives us this information. I saw some different numbers, and I don't know who was exactly right on, but but the, the principle is very clear. Jerusalem was a city of tens of thousands, probably 40 to 80,000 people lived there. But when the Passover came, there would be somewhere between five to 10 times that many people there. Josephus says that there were over two, 2 million people that came in for Passover. Others put the number lower. Uh, I'm not sure what it is, but there was a crowd and there was much confusion. I, I, I normally share this at some point. I probably will do it again later in this series. But there's a, a common misconception in my from my point of reference, and I've got reason to think so, that often we talk about the people who yelled Hosanna on Sunday, yelled crucify him on Friday. I don't know that that's true. I think probably not. And here's why. We live in a a society, an age today, of instant information, correct? Getting a message from around the world is just seconds and, and, and nanoseconds to be able to communicate But you've got to remember back in the time of Jesus, how was communication carried out? Word of mouth. Jesus was arrested Thursday night, Friday morning in the garden. And by 9 o'clock, he's on the cross. It seems highly unlikely out of two million people that had gathered in Jerusalem, that word spread to all of them quickly what was going on. And we read in Scripture that those who were trying to bring harm to Jesus actually looked for people to pay to give false testimony, and it wasn't probably the same people. Now, I'm not going to give them a total pass because they weren't there yelling, get him off the cross. They weren't saying Hosanna or anything of that nature on Friday when they found out. They were, like many of us would be, very discouraged, very much lacking in understanding, and they were facing these issues. Now, you got to understand a little bit of this culture and this time frame. The Jewish people really felt like Messiah would come and he would break off the bondage of the Romans. That was what they were hoping and praying for. And in this, this Palm story, this Palm Sunday story doesn't just seem so nice and pleasant and sweet. And I think in churches where you bring palm branches in, that's kind of the feel like, oh, here are the palm branches. How beautiful, how nice, how sweet, how peaceful. Andreas Kostenberger wrote a book called The Last Week in the Life of Christ. And in it, he says this, that a powder keg ready for a spark filled to the brim with both messianic fervor and hatred of Roman rule created a, a, a situation that had the potential of being just, just cladocosmic in its, its, in its effect, just being destructive in all that it did. Now notice this, as you read the story, it, it appears to me that the people who were there were focused more on what they were expecting, which was Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman government 
and they quickly forgot what they had experienced. And here's what I know from that. Sunday shouts don't guarantee Friday faithfulness. It's easy when everything is right and the crowd's getting excited to join in with the crowd. Here's the main point of this whole crowd story thing right here is don't follow the crowd, follow Jesus. And if the crowd's doing right, then you be right with them. You don't have to fight them. But more times than not, they're not going to be right. And if you follow them, you'll get led astray. It's not enough that you shout on Sunday. By the way, you should shout on Sunday. I'm going to say that again because I need more response. You should shout on Sunday. You should think about what God has done for you, and it should be easy to move you to worship. You say, well, I don't know the songs, or I don't know the You don't have to know the songs to raise your hands. You don't have to know the words just to give a shout of praise to God. We should be motivated and moved to be people of praise, not just because of what we're looking forward to, even though that's a big thing. And I'm not selling that short, so don't get off, turn me off yet. But let's look at what he's already done. Now, we don't worry about this at our church too much, but maybe some places it happens. I remember my dad saying this for years. I've heard it from other people, but emotion without devotion is just commotion. <laughs> In other words, it's not just how loud you shout, it's also how straight you walk when you hit the ground. Do you speak words of integrity and truth? Notice this, they call for peace, but really they want conflict. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman government and reestablish Jewish power, but Jesus had something much bigger in mind. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't limit what he did to their expectation? It would have been temporary. It would have been limited, but what Jesus did is eternal and universal. He died on the cross for you and me. Here's what I know, that religion that does not have relationship leads to frustration. But religion that has relationship leads to fulfillment. It's not enough that I have a code that I live by. It's not enough that I have certain things I do and don't do. There must be a relationship with the living God. I must be connected. Jesus said it this way. He said that he is the vine and we are the branches. We must be connected to him or we will not have life. We will not have vitality, but in him and with him, we have fullness of life. Let me encourage you this way. Let your expectations of what you're believing God for. And by the way, you should be believing God for something. But let them be filled with gratitude for what God has already done for you. How many of you today will simply just acknowledge God has done big things in my life? How many of you did he set free? How many of you we sang about today, but he brought me out of death and he put me into life? I don't know if you believe it yet or not, but I think you might. Come on, we have reason to shout. We have reason to rejoice. We have reason to believe. Our faith is not unfounded. 
and by the way, I may be getting ahead of myself here, but, but, but here's what often happens with people is our faith is based on our thought, our understanding, just like the people of this day going, come on, go down there and knock Caesar out. And it doesn't go that way. Then they go, what? And furthermore, they see Jesus dying on the cross, and now they're really scratching their head going, what in the world happened? I thought he was the one. Saturday is looked at, it's not anything in Scripture really about the day, but it's looked at by most people who study this as a day of darkness and discouragement. The day between crucifixion and resurrection. And it's so easy for us if our faith is founded in, in our wisdom to be discouraged, to be disappointed, and to fail, feel that somehow God failed us. We have to rise to a higher level. We have to ask God to give us spiritual insight. We pray in faith. We believe. By the way, we've got Glenn Berto coming to be with us at the end of the month on a Wednesday. I think it's the 29th. And he wrote a book about four or five years ago, Why Am I Not Healed When God Promised? And this book will answer a lot of things I'm talking about right now. And by the way, if you think, oh, so you're going to deny Faith, and you're going to encourage people to just kind of just exist and not worry about it. No, not at all. But pray in wisdom and in faith. Have a foundation for your faith. What is the foundation of our faith? The foundation of our faith is that God always gets it right. Say, well, why does my kid get bullied at school? Because it's an evil world and people do evil things. Why did my cousin get killed in a car accident when he was young and had so much promise? Because our life is uncertain, but our faith is secure. And we have faith that takes us through the hard things. Not faith just when everything appears the way we think that it should. Third thing I see in the story is this. Critics are always going to be dismayed. They're going to be Knock down the Pharisees, tell Jesus to rebuke the worshipers. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Lord, tell them to stop worshiping you. And Jesus turns it and he rebukes the Pharisees. And notice this, I love it. John mentions that the others don't. They all tell the same story, but they have little insights that not all of them share. John 12, 19 says this. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. They're all following him. We're dead in the water. Notice this. Even though they said that, the Pharisees were committed to doing whatever required to maintain control of the synagogue. That's really what this whole thing was all about. He will upset our system of life, and things will be different, and we don't like different. Notice this. The leading priests, which would be the group called the Sadducees, had planned for the death of Lazarus and Jesus. In this, does anybody get the irony of this, the interesting point of this? That Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but the priests were trying to take Lazarus from life back to death. They're opposing in a totally contrary position than what Jesus did. 
read it there, John 12. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too. Now notice the word two there. You know what two means also, right? So who's the one before that? Jesus. For it was, it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. They said, we, we're losing our followers. This needs to, to, to be dealt with. Fourth thing I want you to know is this. Jesus will always prevail. No one understood what God had planned. The disciples couldn't comprehend it. It's in your notes here. Let me just go real quick through it. Mark lays it out in three chapter, three times Jesus says, I'm going to die. The first time Jesus says, they're going to take me and they're going to kill me. The first time Jesus says it, Peter says, don't say that, Lord. And basically says to, to Jesus, I rebuke you, Jesus. Woo. Bad move there, Peter. And so Jesus speaks back to Peter with incredibly strong words. That's why it was so important to make this clear. He looks back and he says to Peter, get behind me, you devil. Satan, get behind me. Man, I hope Jesus never has to call me the devil. So the first time Jesus says, I'm going to die, they're going to take me, they're going to kill me, Peter rebukes Jesus. The second time he brings it up, the disciples all kind of put their hands in their pockets in our cultural thinking. Look at the ground, don't make eye contact. And they don't know what to say and they get quiet. Now how many of you know for the disciples to be quiet, that was quite a miracle right there. There were some big mouth people in that group. They get quiet because they don't know what to say. And the last time that he tells them, They're going to take me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die a horrible, painful death. James and John almost interrupt him with a very selfish and personal request. Lord, when you come into your place of power, would you grant us to be able to sit right beside you on either side of you, to your right and to your left? How many of you know that if you're sharing that kind of news with someone, it would be kind of like this. This is not even a full illustration, but it'll make the point to you. If someone told you that, that I've been diagnosed by the doctor and I have an incurable disease and I'm going to die in five days, and the first person says to you, you know, uh, I rebuke you for saying that, how many of you know that's not real comforting in that moment? Then the next time you tell them, everybody just gets silent and they don't even talk about it. Don't make eye contact. And then the third time you say, you know, they've told me I have a, a, a disease that's incurable and I only have a few days to live. How I many of the third time you say it, what if the two friends say to you, well, when you die, can, can you leave me your car? Will you leave me your golf clubs? I've always wanted your golf clubs and now that you're going to be gone, might as well be me. That's kind of the scenario of what's happening here, even more so. But in spite of all of their lack of understanding, Jesus was following the plan of the Father. And he was fully committed to completing the assignment, fulfilling all that he had been assigned to do. And he has now made intercession for you and I. He has become the propitiation, the one in our place who paid for our sins. And because of that, we are now reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. 
we can now be made righteous through faith in the work of Christ. Don't let your expectations drive your life. Let God's plan be your source of direction. Let God speak to you. Listen for him. The Jews were expecting an earthly king, but God had a greater plan. They were expecting someone to fight their battle in the present day world, but God had the ultimate plan of sending his son to fight the final battle over sin and death. I'm glad the Jews didn't get their way. God had a plan. Make sure your expectations are godly. Here's what I want to do this morning as I conclude. I want to ask you right now, will you join the good part of what these folks did in this story and give God praise? Will you remember what he's done for you? Will you recognize how good he's been to you? If any of these phrases connect with you, would you just, as I say them, would you stand to your feet, lift your hands and give praise to God? Will you help me rejoice because your sins are forgiven? Hallelujah. Rejoice that you are in right standing with God. I am his child. I belong to him. I'm part of his family. Jesus paid it all. Rejoice that hope is secure in him. Would you give praise to God? For he is worthy. We bless you, oh God. We worship you, Lord. his name hallelujah we bless you Lord you are our Redeemer you are our Savior you are our deliverer we thank you God for your goodness and for your faithfulness you know the tragedy of this story comes out of the next few verses in Luke 12 there let me read it to you as they came closer to Jerusalem and Jesus saw the city ahead, he began to weep. And here's what he said. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. 
But now it's too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Before you long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close it on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity for salvation. It's not enough to know we have to receive. We have to receive. We have to open our heart, open our life and say, Jesus, come and be the Lord. Thank you that you are the Savior. Now I give you control of my life. If you're here today and you've never made that move, you've never made that statement, or maybe it was long in the past, you're not living there currently, what a great day for you to renew your relationship with God by simply saying, Lord, help me to follow you in complete obedience. Help me to be used of you, God, to accomplish your will. I want to give you a word of encouragement as we wrap this part up. How many of you in the room would honestly say that there's expectation in your heart for God to do something overwhelming in your life, in your family, in our church, but you're expecting God to do something. Can I just, would you just raise your hand? If you don't have anything, start believing. But can I encourage you with this? Don't let your expectation cause you to be frustrated or bitter. How many of you know that that the devil wants to take everything that happens and use it, pervert it for evil, and God wants to take everything and use it for good? If we're not careful, we allow just this cynicism to get in our heart, this bitterness. And rather than coming, expecting, believing, every day waking up saying, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. We keep thinking it's way on down the road there somewhere. Can I tell you that today salvation has come? Today is the day for you to grab hold of what you're believing for and hang on to it for dear life. Put your faith in God not in what you think. Now, good news, God says a lot about what he's wanting to do. If you're praying for someone to get saved that's not a Christian, the Bible's real clear. God is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to repent. Can't make it any more clear than that. Keep believing. Keep praying. Now, if your expectation is this, I will live a long and healthy life and have lots of money in the bank and have great success. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. I'm not 100% sure that's from God. That was a rousing silence. But can we have enough faith and expectation to say, Lord, that where you lead me, I will follow. On sunshiny days, I'm going to praise God. On rainy days, I'm going to praise God. When it all makes sense, 
I'm going to praise God when none of it makes sense. I'm going to praise God when I can connect the dots. I'm going to praise God when I don't even know where the dots are. I'm still going to praise God. I'm going to praise God and believe and hope in him and trust in him. I will not give up. I will not be discouraged because my hope is in the Lord. How many of you believe in for God to do something in your life? Raise your hand again right now. I want to pray over you. Father, I pray right now. And I thank you, God, that in your wisdom you look upon us and you help us and you guide us. Lord, so many places in Scripture we read that you direct our steps. And I pray, Lord, that you would direct our steps, guide us in the right path. May our faith grow stronger in you every day. And Lord, we're going to believe for everything to turn out good from our perspective. But even if it doesn't, we're still going to believe in you. And we will know, God, that you are at work. Give us wisdom to do the things that we can do. But Lord, more than anything, give us a deep-seated trust that leans on you. Lord, I thank you for the words that you gave Solomon that were recorded that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek the will of God, and he will show you which path to take. Lord, we trust in you today, and we believe, God, in your faithfulness. Help us to learn lessons from Palm Sunday that lead us in the path of righteousness, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.